The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah and the gospel according to Matthew. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. A reading from Isaiah, chapter 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. And now a reading from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. God, I pray that you would meet us now in these stories, these ancient stories, um, from actually two different eras of your redemptive history in the world, but two communities facing, wrestling with issues that are not that different than what we wrestle with in our lives today. So. Let this Advent story um, help us begin again, find ways to start again, and find ways to generate new life in you in all areas of our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again, City Church. Um, We are in the second week of Advent, as you probably know, and this Advent season and the Christmas season in general um, is both such a time of celebration and gearing up for 
for many people, the best holiday of the season. And it's also a time where the world, even nature itself, is slowing down and getting darker and colder, and everything is kind of going into this deep hibernation, waiting for the days to get longer, waiting for new life to spring out. And the biblical story follows a similar pattern. So today, all over the world, thousands and thousands of churches are looking at these same passages. These same passages from Isaiah and from Matthew, talking about John the Baptist, two communities about 700 years apart, five to 700 years apart, depending on when you think each one was written, but facing really similar questions. And you have a prophet Isaiah, and you have a prophet John the Baptist communicating to a people whose faith had largely gone stale, who were wondering and asking all kinds of questions, saying to them, you need to find a way to begin again. So this lesson, this sermon, both of these passages have a lot to do with beginning again. Both communities, 700 years apart, had fallen into staleness and even corruption in many ways. They were afraid. They were living in fear of occupying powers, the Assyrians and then later the Romans. They were questioning why God would allow them to suffer politically. They were using, this is where we started to get extra corrupt, they were actually using their religion in attempts to secure power while questioning why their glory days were over. Looking back on their great origin stories, as we all tend to do, saying, you know, we were called as a nation to be God's chosen people, the children of Abraham, and so why are things not going well anymore? And they were both tending to blame, in all that questioning and doubt, they were tending to blame external sources, blame the external threat of the Assyrians, which was the Isaiah context, blame the external threat of the Romans, which was the John the Baptist context. But what they're both saying, what John and Isaiah are both saying is you're having the wrong conversation. The questions you're asking are not the questions you need to be asking. You need to think again. You need to re-examine your life. You need to re-examine your story. And interestingly, they both use tree and stump imagery, which is why we're looking at that very stark picture of a burnt out forest. Because the chapter before in Isaiah, in Isaiah 10, Isaiah tells a story about God actually coming through and wiping out this great forest that symbolizes the power and strength of the Israel community at the time. That's what happens before our more hopeful passage this morning. And John the Baptist, as he talks to these Pharisees that are coming to basically do a showy, pietistic act, but aren't really willing to change their lives, he says, look, stop relying on your old story of being children of Abraham. If you're not willing and ready to repent, the ax is ready to fall. So they're both using this imagery of trees and stumps as a call to repentance. And John, right away and in very clear terms, uses that very sort of Christian word, repentance. 
Repentance is key to beginning again, but repentance kind of has a bad rap, I think, in modern culture because it's just loaded with a lot of theological baggage. It can feel like religious kind of manipulation. Um, It can connote some idea that you're supposed to feel bad about yourself. But that's not at all what the biblical practice, the biblical mindset of repentance is. And you may have heard this before, but if you dig into the Bible and the way it actually deals with that idea of repentance, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's just a concept of changing direction, making a course correction in your life. In the New Testament, in the Greek, the word has a lot to do with changing your mind to seeing something new and kind of waking up to a new reality. And so there's a lot to be gleaned and a lot to be learned by looking at repentance as not just something we think we're supposed to do when we've made giant mistakes in our life. But repentance actually as just a humble posture of everyday life. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, when Martin Luther ignited the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s by nailing the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Chapel door, the very first one, the first point that he makes that ends up changing religious history forever, all of life is repentance. God wants us to understand that all of life is repentance. Meaning repentance is actually a daily moment-by-moment posture that in every instant of your life, every instance, every moment, there's a possibility of starting over. There's a possibility of rethinking and seeing in new ways what's going on in front of you, of changing direction. There's a possibility of not being reactive, but seeing clearly judging clearly. And you see a little hint at that in verse 3 in the Isaiah passage where it says that this great king who would come or this new ruler will not judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. But what that is, it's actually a Hebrew idiom saying basically he will not be reactive. He will judge clearly from his heart, not from what's going on around him. And you know, in this current age, there is so much out there about mindfulness. People are obsessed, I mean, me too, studying different forms of it, awareness training, a lot of good stuff, but it's taken over the culture in some good ways, in some good meaningful ways, and it's just interesting that the practice of repentance, moment to moment, every instant of your life, being in a posture, a humble, grounded posture of repentance actually shows that that presence, awareness, openness, non-reactivity is actually supposed to be part of the Christian life all the time, too. So there's a lot to be learned from it, a lot to incorporate to help us in our own lives. And so I'm on a little bit of a personal quest, both in my own life and practice and then in places where I teach and talk, to make repentance great again. I want repentance... (laughs) It might be something our country could also learn from, too. Um, It certainly was what the prophets were saying to the Israel community, who were obsessed with their greatness, or at least what they thought should be their greatness. It's like, no, it's about repentance. It's about going back to the beginning and starting over. And so what if, like, for us as a church, what if San Francisco, when they thought about City Church, 
I'm talking about people not really part of our community, but who know our community. And they said, you know, this is a group of people who are always willing to rethink how they operate and what they believe. This is a group of people, this is a community that works really hard to be non-reactive. This is a community that's willing to admit when they've got it wrong and make changes. It's a community that's really willing to be curious, to study hard and see what's really happening in the city, what's really happening in people's lives. It's a community that's willing to change and prune back and make shifts when necessary. I mean, what if that was our reputation in the city? In some ways, I think it is, but what if that was really, truly how we were viewed all the time? And then what if, as individuals, that was how all our friends and colleagues viewed ourselves, as people who lived that way? So for Advent, one question is just to begin to think, how can this season, the season of Advent, be a time for us each individually to think about the things where we might need to start over? It could be larger things Smaller things it could be a matter of a, a personal matter, a relational matter, a vocational matter. But Advent's a good time. It's a very appropriate time to ask these kinds of questions. And I came across, you might have seen it too, a um, column in the New York Times by an Anglican priest named Tish Warren, who I met years ago at an event. Um, but somehow she got a piece on Advent put in the New York Times. But she made some really cool points. She says, like, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. So to practice Advent is to lean into almost a cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. This is the key part. Advent holds space for our grief, and it reminds us that all of us, reminds all of us that in one way or another, we are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but we're also wielders of it. We're not only wounded by the evil in the world, we're actually also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness, of impatience, of selfishness. Advent's a good time to look at our lives, to look at how we're longing for the world to be healed, how we're longing for our personal lives to be healed, and be willing to make some changes. But it can be a bit scary when you're willing to actually go on the journey of repentance and to face what might be true about your life that you don't want to be true. And again, we're complex beings. So we all have parts of our lives that are thriving and growing, and then we have parts that look a lot more like those burnt-out stumps. Repentance calls us to become grounded, to see what's really true if we want to start over. And it can be scary at first when you think part of your life looks more like that than the towering tree you prefer yourself or you envision yourself as. But what I want us to see today is that it's actually not as scary as it can seem. Because when you take a closer look at stumps, we're gonna talk for a minute about trees and stumps, okay? When you take a closer look at stumps, you often see that they're not actually dead. Stumps are not actually dead all the time. They can be, if you just like grind them to a pulp, they'll eventually die. But stumps actually 
are still alive, especially in certain kinds of trees. Now, beware of pastors teaching botany, okay? But I know a few things. You can fact check this later. I didn't just read it. I've had some teachers teach me some things, leadership stuff using nature settings and from actual biologists and stuff, which is cool. But stumps aren't always dead at all. And they stay alive in some really unique, fascinating ways. So if you just chop down a deciduous tree, the stump doesn't die. The stump sinks its roots as far as it can further into the soil. And if it's in a forest, some really, really freaking cool things happen, where if it can, it will graft its roots to the roots of other living trees and live off the other living trees' carbon excesses for years and years and years. There's still life happening in these stumps. And then at the right moment, and what we see in the Isaiah passage today, the stump will attempt to send up a new shoot to start a new tree. That's the shoot, the new tree that begins in Isaiah 11. And what makes it even more profound, I think, is that in many cases, the stump itself becomes the nutrient base for the new tree. It provides the initial energy that the new tree needs to get going, meaning nothing's wasted. Even in that moment where it seems like there's failure, because the old tree's been chopped down and it's gone and the stump looks like it's dead in some ways, it's not actually dead, and everything there is used to help start the new life again. Advent might be a time where we have to think about areas to repent. Advent might also be a time for you where you have to get to a place where you're willing, even you have the imagination to see new life begin to grow in your personal world again. Because if you're in a time, and we go through these times of life, if you're in a time where that tree's been chopped down, some area of your life, a relationship's gone badly, you're in a vocational crossroad, facing some kind of personal or health concern, something where you feel, well, let's just put it this way. You're staring at some stump in your life and you're looking at the rings of the years of investment that you've put into some area of life that didn't turn out great or didn't turn out exactly the way you hoped. It's easy sometimes to just see all that investment, all those years, as just pure failure and pure regret, and that nothing can be gleaned back from those things. But that's not, that's not the Christian story. That's not the biblical story at all. The biblical story is nothing is wasted, and that God can actually begin to grow a new tree, even out of your old failures. That's Isaiah 11. Forest laid to waste, stumps that look like they're dead, but then a new tree begins to grow, showing that the promise of God and the calling of God is indestructible on your life. Which is why Isaiah calls that stump Jesse. Jesse, the father of the Davidic line of kings, the father of kind of the promise that Israel would always have a secure line of kings that sort of culminates in Jesus Christ. But Isaiah is saying there's still something indestructible 
in that stump. Something that's going to grow again, and even the failures will be used. And it reminded me of a poem by Antonio Machado. It's a Spanish poet. And this poem is the one, there's a clip of it in your worship folder this morning. This is the second poem I ever memorized in my life. And I'm not going to recite it from memory here because I don't want to get it wrong. My favorite line from it is in the worship folder. But he says, last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt. This is translated from Spanish. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt. Blessed illusion that a spring was breaking out in my heart. And I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I have never drunk. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, O blessed illusion, that I had a beehive here inside my heart. And the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, O blessed illusion, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. And it was fiery because I felt the warmth as from a hearth and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night, I slept. As I slept, I dreamt, oh, blessed illusion, that it was God here inside my heart. God inside our hearts, like a beehive, making white combs and sweet honey from our old failures. The promises of God in a tree stump, the name Jesse, with a promise that that stump was going to nourish and send a new shoot that would grow into a kind of community, a kind of world that was even better than anything that had happened before. And so that image that Isaiah then launches into of that new kind of world that could happen is really fascinating and amazing, this new sort of spirit-infused world of perfect peace where animals no longer eat each other. And you know, I did a little bit of work with the scholars looking at this, and you know, I don't know that there's a literal world to come where, you know, like a lion as we know it um, is an herbivore. And the scholars tend to look at this, even conservative scholars, most of the scholars tend to look at this as poetic imagery, which the Bible and the prophets use all over the place, sort of hyperbolic poetic imagery to make a point. But it does make a point. It makes a point that there's a peaceful kingdom that God wants to see established in our hearts and in our lives that's radically different than the way we're programmed to go out into the world now, a new kind of world that's non-violent, that's non-reactive, where there's complete equity of power that nobody's threatened, and a world that's full of the knowledge of God. And in that passage, in that section of Isaiah, there's all these allusions back to Genesis language, which we can't get into today, but it's new creation. But now the world, instead of being full of animals and the seas full of fish, the world is full of the knowledge of God just like the sea is full of water. And you dig into that word a little bit, and it just means ultimate completion, ultimate accomplishment. And the one who comes to us, especially this time of year, Advent, the Christmas season, the one who's promised here in Isaiah and is looked to, looked forward to in John the Baptist's teaching in Matthew, is guided 
by the Spirit. And that's the only way this happens. And the only way we go on the journey of repentance, of starting over again. The only way you would want to go on that journey is to know that you're not alone. That God goes with you every step of the way. Verse 2 of the Isaiah passage makes a lot of promises about who this new leader would be, pointing to Jesus. Jesus comes along later and makes that same spirit available to us. And those lines of verse 2 are often used in baptismal liturgies as promises to us. So just listen to those for one moment as you think about your life and you think about what might be in front of you, that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon you the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And your delight can be in the fear of the Lord. And that last line, there's a Hebrew scholar, uh, Robert Alter, who does some work in really getting closer to the Hebrew of that last line, where he says, your very breath can be the fear of the Lord. God's spirit blessing you, God's spirit leading you, filling you with wisdom, and your breath, same word as spirit in the Hebrew, your spirit, your breath, the fear of the Lord, divine reverence. And the picture, when you just dig into it, is this union with the Holy Spirit on the journey of life and repentance, of starting over, of beginning again, that is the unique Christian gift to the world. There's a lot to learn from other philosophies, from other religions. But I don't know of one, aside from the Christian faith, that offers this kind of personal, intimate, almost on a breathing level, relationship with a God who comes that close to us and guides us on the journey of repentance, of starting over and seeing new possibilities for new life in our lives. So let that that be part of our journey this Advent season personally and as a church. Let Advent be a time of beginning again and being willing to see new life, able to see new life. I'm going to close with the prayer that's actually the collect in our worship folder, which maybe you never look at, but it's at the very beginning, I think page two of the worship folder. Um, Such a great prayer. It's at the bottom of the page. God of the keen blade. God of the keen blade, which cuts the roots of arrogant power, you raise voices of promise in the dry lands of our desire. Make us ready to receive the spirit and the fire of love, wild and free through Jesus Christ, the one who is to come. Amen.